Thanks for checking out the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. I'm Rick Samprin. More calls to make access to health care permanent for all uninsured Ontarians. We'll tell you why thousands of workers in this province may soon be calling an employment lawyer. A new cell-based therapy is in the works to treat type 1 diabetes, remembering the infamous Toronto punk rock riot. The Canusa Games is returning to normal, and don't look up, a solar storm is hitting Earth. The GMH podcast starts now. This is the Good Morning Hamilton podcast on 900 CHML. Big rally at Queen's Park today as over a thousand healthcare workers and 200 community organizations are going to be at the provincial legislature delivering an open letter. And what is inside or what is contained in this open letter? Well, it's a big call for permanent access to healthcare for all uninsured people. You will probably remember, especially if you're in this boat, that the Ontario government removed the um, medically necessary care for people in Ontario without health insurance. And so now this group of doctors and nurses, public health experts, midwives, uh, health workers and community groups all saying that this should be made permanent. Dr. Shazeen Sulman is a pediatrician at St. Michael's Hospital and a member of the Healthcare for All Coalition and joins us now on Good Morning Hamilton. Dr. Sulman, good morning. How are you today? Good morning. I'm, I'm doing well, thank you. Thanks for having me on the show. Give us a lay of the land today. What's going to happen? Yeah, so today what we're doing is, like you, like you said, is we are actually calling on the government to do the right thing and make this program permanent. And, um, you know, in, in March 2020, when they did this, they did two things. They removed the three-month waiting period for OHIP for returning Canadians, for those approved with permanent residency, um, and, and even newcomers, and even introduced funding to physician and hospital services to be able to care for individuals without health insurance. And this meant that people now could get care in the right place at the right time. And so, for example, it would mean that a child with asthma, as a pediatrician, would be able to see me in my office rather than going to the hospital when they were in a crisis and needing to be in the emergency room or or worse, admitted or even go to the ICU. And so do we know when this temporary access is going to end? We don't know. What we do know is that the government has started to turn back some COVID-era policies, and we know that this isn't a permanent program. So what we're calling for is to actually take that, perm- that, that label of temporary away and make it permanent, because we also want to remove these barriers. We know it's important that all people living in Ontario can, in line with the principles of you know, equity and access and universality in the Ontario Health Insurance Act, mean that people need to get care when they need it, when they're living here. It's it's the right thing to do for, for folks living in Ontario. This is a hugely important topic, as you mentioned, uh, and, 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 you know, relayed that story of, let's say, uh, you know, a child has asthma and instead of going to the hospital, and some hospital ERs are closing because of the uh, labor shortage, the impact of COVID, instead of going to the hospital, they can go to a local pediatrician, even a, a walk-in clinic to get the care that they need. Um, if this is not made permanent, there's going to be a lot of people having to go to hospital, which is going to p- put more pressure on the system. You know, that that is what we are worried about, because we know that access to health care saves lives. We know that it prevents health complications. And we know, just as you're saying, it lowers the demand for already stretched acute care resources. Um, 
you know, you know, Rick, I can tell you that as a pediatrician, when I see a child come in with a condition that could have been prevented, that could have been treated sooner, it adds a, a level of, of moral distress that we don't, that adds to the burnout I think we're already all feeling. And our system, like you said, I, I worry is at its breaking point. If we go back in time, I am really a word worried about the, the consequences that this could have not only for patients waiting longer and longer, but also the burnt out providers. We're talking about permanent access to health care for uninsured Ontarians on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML with our guest, Dr. Shazine Suleiman, pediatrician at St. Michael's Hospital and a member of the Healthcare for All Coalition. It's going to be a... Uh, a rather symbolic um, gesture, uh, for lack of a better term, at Queen's Park today, because many who are taking part in the rally will be carrying umbrellas, and that has nothing to do with staying in the shade for you know the, the heat wave that we're going to get today. Uh, talk about the symbolism behind the umbrella. Yeah, it's you know the umbrella is the idea that it covers you, and what we are asking for and calling on the government to do is make this program permanent, so it provides coverage for all. People living in Ontario. Do you have a sense of how many Ontarians could benefit from permanent access to health care? You know, that's a great question. We know that there's an estimated about 500,000 children and adults living in Ontario who don't have public health insurance at any given time. And like I said, this could be folks who are coming back to Ontario from living in another province or abroad. This could be someone who's just been approved for permanent residency. These could be approved resettled refugees. Um, And it also includes like temporary foreign workers, international students and non-status Ontarians. So that's what we're talking about in terms of making sure that these individuals and everyone in Ontario can get care when they need it. With any rally, you know, there's always a sense of, you know, is anyone listening? Is anyone going to do anything? Do you have any sort of uh, gut feeling on how the province is going to react or or how you expect them to react to this? I think we're hoping that they, again, we're, we're calling on them to do the right thing. We they, they were the ones who put this program in place in March 2020, and it has removed these, like you said, these really longstanding barriers. And so we want them to hear that there's healthcare workers and really a coalition uh, of healthcare workers and community workers who are saying, keep doing the right thing. Well, best of luck today. It goes from noon till one. Let's hope the province listens and uh, we get a lot more people under that healthcare umbrella. Dr. Suleiman, thanks for the time today. Thank you so much. That is Dr. Shazine Suleiman, pediatrician at St. Michael's Hospital and a member of the Healthcare for All Coalition. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Yeah, we're talking about your money, your employment. If you're still in the working game, I know some of our listeners are long retired and enjoying that retirement. And good for you. Congratulations. You made it. Um, Many more are still slugging it out day to day, whether it's nine to five or anywhere in between. And working these days, uh, you know, there's some twists and turns here, there, and everywhere. Including last Saturday, where we got some news that uh, certain portions of Ontario's infectious disease emergency leave had ended. Uh, Paid infectious disease emergency leave was extended to March 31st, 2023, but portions of that uh, are no longer applicable. So... What does that mean for thousands and thousands of workers who have been on temporary layoff 
due to COVID-19. Lior Samfiro is a national co-managing partner and employment lawyer with Samfiro Tumarkin LLP and joins us now on Good Morning Hamilton. Lior, how are you today? I'm doing great and it's always uh, terrific to be with you. Um, let's recap what the infectious disease emergency leave is all about. How did it work? So back in the spring of 2020, the Ontario government, in an effort to try to alleviate some of the pressures that employers were, were facing, implemented the infectious disease emergency leaves. And one of the things it does is it allowed employers to either reduce pay, reduce hours of work, or just put employees off work if they were doing so because of COVID-19 without facing the same legal repercussions that they would otherwise face. So the effect of that, that back at, certainly back in the spring of 2020, many employers took advantage of that, and thousands and thousands of people across Ontario were placed on this leave, uh, you know, despite not necessarily wanting to. And I know that for a fact that up until this past Saturday, when that, that leave expired, there were still many employees across the province that were still patiently waiting at home to be called back to work. But as I said, as of uh, Saturday, that that protection that employers had that allowed them to put employees off work uh, has expired. So what does that mean for employees and what does that mean for employers? Maybe we'll start with the employees part of this. So the, the answer is probably going to be the same for, for employees and employers in that uh, now that that protection that employees had uh, is gone, employees are expected to be called back to work to the same job, same compensation, same hours of work that they had previously. And if they don't, if, if the employer chooses not to do that or maybe chooses to, to change some terms of employment, because they don't have those same protections that the, uh, that the leave provided, there's going to be legal consequences. Not putting, bringing the employee back to work could be considered a termination of employment, triggering severance obligations. If you change an employee's uh, hours or compensation, that may be considered a constructive dismissal. So employees now are expected that, that, that status quo uh, will resume for them. And for many employees, I think that's welcome news, especially if you've been home waiting for over two years. It's probably, um, uh, you know, many companies out there that over the last number of years, because of the pandemic, have had to pivot and, and switch how they go about doing business, which may mean uh, less employees on the payroll. If that's the case, is that an automatic um, um, uh, termination for that employee? So one thing to, to remember is that just because an employer is doing something in good faith, so we don't have a job for you, employee, but it's not because we're bad or you're bad, you know, COVID changed things, and that may be completely legitimate, but just because it's legitimate and in good faith does not relieve an employer from having to abide by the laws and provide severance to those employees that lose their job. So yes, for those uh, employees that find themselves out of work now, they would be owed severance. And depending on how long they work for the company and a few other factors, that could be quite substantial, as much as two years' pay potentially per employee. So I know for a fact, because I've already spoken with employees and employers, that there's going to be potentially some hefty costs that some employers were not necessarily expecting or, or, or properly calculating, just because of the reasons that you mentioned that, yes, we've pivoted, we've changed, those jobs don't exist. But just because of that, that does not relieve that employer from having to pay. 
Our guest on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML is Lior Samfiro, National Co-Managing Partner and Employment Lawyer at Samfiro Tamarkin LLP. You can listen more of Lior from uh, uh, Samfiro Tamarkin LLP on the Employment Law Show Sundays at noon right here on 900 CHML. If the job description has changed, how does that change the back and forth between employee and employer? Maybe that employer or that employee is not getting the same hours or the hours are different. The the day has shifted. What's that negotiation or that conversation like? So an employer does have some discretion to make some changes to the job. So it's not a situation where they can't do anything. It's a question of whether it's a significant change. So if you were operating machine number one and now you have to operate machine number two, well, that's probably a change that an employer can make and, and something that the employer uh, does not, uh, you know, does not allow that employer, uh, the employee to, to see compensation. But significant change. If I used to work day shifts and now I'm going to work night shifts, or I used to be in a managerial position and now I've effectively been demoted to a non-managerial position. That is not something that the employer can impose unilaterally. And by doing that, it may allow the employee to treat their employment as being terminated and require the company to pay severance. The one thing, though, that an employee can do is to try the change out. And what I often say is talk to your employer and say, I have a, a real concern about these new hours, but here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to try it out for the next few weeks, see how that works, how that fits with my lifestyle. And if it's fine, it's great. If not, then we're going to have a different conversation. You can't try it out for a period of time without being considered to have accepted uh, unconditionally that change. But if you simply continue working as an employee, don't say anything, and months later you realize that, well, you didn't like to do that, you didn't uh, like changing those hours, well, by then you will be considered to have accepted it. So try it for a short period of time, let your employer know that that's what you're doing, and then decide whether you want to continue with those changes. But again, this concept of constructive dismissal happens whenever the employer makes significant and unilateral changes to terms of employment. You can get more information online, stlawyers.ca. Lior, thank you for the time today. Enjoy the rest of your day. Thank you. You as well. That's Lior Samfiro, National Co-Managing Partner, Employment Lawyer at Samfiro Tamarkin LLP. You can hear more of this type of discussion every Sunday at noon on the Employment Law Show right here on 900 CHML. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. More than 100 years after Sir Frederick Banting discovered insulin, there's a professor at McMaster University who aims to cure type 1 diabetes with a cell-based therapy. This is a game-changer. This is exciting news. Dr. Harold Stover is a professor at McMaster University and joins us now on Good Morning Hamilton. Dr. Stover, good morning. How are you? I'm good, thank you. Thanks for having me. How close are you to finding a cure? That's a really good question, Rick. Uh, I will say it's, it'll be a couple of years still. We are currently developing the technology. We are in preclinical work and we are aiming to be in the clinic with human patients in about, I'll say, two years if things go well. How does this cell-based therapy work? What do you do? Well, you see, in type 1 diabetes, patients have lost their own cells that normally regulate their blood sugar. So there is a therapy to replace them with uh, stem cell derived or other uh, insulin producing cells, but they need to be protected from the patient's immune system. We develop hydrogels that can uh, uh, protect these transplanted cells from being again destroyed by the patient's immune system. 
So when the clinical trials come about, will you be looking for type 1 diabetes sufferers that, that have had the illness for a while? Does it really matter the time frame of how long they've been battling it? There are some general guidelines as to who will be eligible for uh, clinical trials. And the clinical trials won't be run by ourselves. It'll be run by a clinical um, partner uh, working out of an eyelid transplant uh, uh, hospital. But typical inclusion criteria are you have to be between 18 and 65, and there are a number of other inclusion and exclusion criteria. Our guest on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML is Dr. Harold Stover, a chemistry professor at McMaster University and co-founder of Alarda Life Sciences. This is obviously exciting news, especially to those who have type 1 diabetes, which has really has been a drain on, on how our healthcare system in terms of funding and new treatments. When could this ultimately be implemented in the marketplace? I would say uh, conservatively, it could be on the order of five to 10 years. Things are speeding up because, as you said, the need is recognized globally and in Canada and cells are becoming available. Now what we need to do is protect these cells from immune rejection. And that's where our hydrogels can help. Is there any sort of similar research that is being conducted? Yeah, there are many other groups in the world that are pursuing similar goals. And the concepts of encapsulating transplanted islets was actually pioneered in Canada about 40 years ago at the University of Toronto. The challenge is that the human immune system is very, very finicky as to what foreign materials it tolerates in the body. So many things have worked in rodents and other animals, but very little has worked in humans yet. So the race is on with several individuals and organizations trying to find a cure. What kind of, what's the competition like? I'd imagine you want to be the first. The, we want to be the one that actually succeeds to helping patients uh, find an alternate to daily insulin measurements and injections. There is a huge need and growing need globally. The cells are becoming available. The delivery device is still a challenge. I'd imagine so. Could similar cell-based therapy applications be used to treat other diseases as well? Can we use this uh, apart from just diabetes? Yes, absolutely, Rick. So cell-based therapies are shaping up to be a new branch, if you like, of modern medicine. In principle, any indication, any medical indication where a patient is missing one enzyme or hormone, including different forms of hemophilia, perhaps even Parkinson's, can be addressed by transplanted cells that produce that enzyme or hormone. Well, this is exciting stuff. Dr. Stover, uh, congratulations on getting this far. Good luck with the clinical trials in a couple of years, and we'll certainly touch base with you down the road to see how you're doing. Thank you very much. That is Dr. Harold Stover, chemistry professor at McMaster University and co-founder of Alarda Life Sciences, and we could be just a few years away, fingers crossed, to a cure unbelievably so, for type 1 diabetes through this cell-based therapy. That is extremely exciting. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Hey, new details have come forward in regards to plans for Ontario Place. We know that Ontario Place, as a uh, an attraction, has been closed for a number of years. You can still go to the area and partake in 
uh, you know, the greenery, you can go to concerts at the Budweiser stage. But uh, there are bold new plans in place to refurbish Ontario Place and make it a a go-to destination for people in this province and really around the world. They want to make it an international destination. Some of the ideas that, um, that the city and uh, certain partners have include a water park that has a retractable roof. It's a pretty a, a 365, 24-7 water park. A sandy beach boardwalk, a botanical gardens and pools. Looks like uh, the Budweiser stage itself will get a facelift. And uh, it's all, you know, right now it's in the design and approval stage, but it's all expected to start in terms of construction and the refurbishment in late 2023 or probably more accurately early 2024. Ontario Place, if you recall, especially if you're of a certain vintage, was also the scene of an infamous concert 42 years ago. It's still known to this day as the Toronto Punk Rock Riot. And our next guest was there 42 years ago, waiting, yearning, and so excited to see Hamilton's teenage head play the Forum at Ontario Place. His name is Lou Molinaro. He's an instructor at the Harris Institute for Music and, as well, an instructor at Durham College, a longtime Hamilton music promoter, and, of course, a super fan of Teenage Head, who was at this concert June 2nd, 1980. Lou, good morning. Welcome to the show. How are you? Lou, do we have you? Yeah. Hey, there you are. Uh, here. Does it feel like 42 years ago? <laughs> no, I think about this uh, show often. It's still so typical because for me it was one of my biggest adventures in life. So take us back to June 2nd, 1980. You know that Teenage Head is playing at Ontario Place. You're a big fan of the band, so you decide to go to the concert. Uh, and then it gets interesting. Well, I have to take you back maybe just a couple of weeks before the show because okay. uh, me and a couple of friends from high school decided that this was going to be a Monday concert. Uh, we were going to skip school in order to go to the show, so we wanted to take the whole day off, uh, get to Toronto early because we had a strategy of getting there early, getting good seats, and we did all that. Um, but because we were so young, I was 15 and so were my uh, friends that went. We were in grade 10. Um Everybody that was at the show was a few years older and definitely a little bit more intimidating in, in, in their look and image. So once we got to, to the forum, we, we picked our seats, but then people started coming in, and we, were, we felt so afraid that we started moving back and back and back. And then we finally got towards the very back of the forum because we felt kind of comfortable there. And we watched the uh, Teenage Head show. Bob Segarini opened up. It was the circular... Um, stage so it went in uh in in, in a circle uh, every few minutes it did this rotation of 360 degrees and it's not the same layout as you see the budweiser stage uh right now it was the old ontario place forum and i remember it was such a uh, an interesting place to go because during the day it was filled with mothers and fathers and children baby strollers and then as the day went on, it was starting to get filled with punk rockers and leather jackets. <laughs> <laughs> and it came to a point where, because this show was so hyped, you know, the story goes the promoter and the record label was just blasting the news of this show for weeks on end leading up to the event, that a lot more people turned out than expected, and that led to some problems. Frantic City was the number one album in Canada. 
at that particular point. I believe the record may have come out in the spring of 1980. So by June 2nd, the momentum was just going on. And the deal was, for this particular show, they had uh, ticketed concerts, but for this show, you pay admission to the park and you get to see the concert for free. So they didn't think this out thoroughly and properly. So um, the Ontario Place Forum hit its capacity and there was tons of people that couldn't get into the show. There were people that were on uh, boats trying to cross the water, trying to get in, all sorts of things, just trying to get into the actual park uh, or, or, or the forum. So by the end of it, um, once uh, the concert ended, there was this pandemonium, but there was a riot that broke out. So the entrance uh, or exit of um, Ontario Place was filled with police and rioters and people that were just freaking out. (laughs) And it spilled all over to uh, Lakeshore, and it also affected service for the TTC. And so this created an issue for you getting back home. So I lived in Oshawa at the time, and we were hoping to get the uh, the, the streetcar to take us to Union from uh, from Exhibition, but they suspended that just because of the riot and all the craziness that was going on. So we ended up walking, and we were so intimidated. As I said, this was such an adventurous time for me, and being 15 years old and seeing this all unfold was really crazy. So we we decided to walk to Union Station. By the time we got to Union, the last train that was to leave for Oshawa had already left, so we were stranded. But it wasn't only us, it was a bunch of other people that were going eastbound to Oshawa and Whitby and Durham Region. But the same about people that missed the last train heading westbound towards Hamilton and Burlington. So there was a bunch of us that were just hanging out at Union Station till the first uh, train was available for us to get back home. And for me, it wasn't uh, an opportunity for sleep because I knew I was going to get so much trouble uh, once I got home because my parents were expecting me and I didn't show up. I'm sure they were really worried. I was the only kid as well. So, um, yeah, it, it, uh, it, although it was such a, a, a wild and adventurous time, uh, it was rather stressful as well. I can imagine. And uh, we were chatting yesterday, and when you got home, your parents sent you to school that day because you weren't going to miss another another day of school. <laughs> So my, my dad went to work. My mom called in sick because she, first of all, knew something was wrong because I didn't come home. She woke up, and um, by pattern uh, back then, my mom would always listen to the radio and hear the news. And she heard about this uh, riot that happened at Ontario Place. She knew I was there, so she was worried sick. I could have called uh, late in the evening, collect, just to let my parents know that I wasn't going to come home, but I knew I was going to get an earful, so I figured instead of getting it twice, I'll just get it once, once I get home. So my mom took the day home, uh, day off from work just to make sure that I was going to be okay, and as soon as I got home, uh, she, yeah, she told me to, to go to school because there was no uh, excuse to stay home and rest and bask <laughs> in the glory of a teenage at riot. Yeah, you, you had your fun the night before. Lou, we'll have to leave it there. Thanks for reminiscing with us, and enjoy the rest of your day. Enjoy yours as well. Thanks, Rick. That's Lou Molinero, instructor at the Harris Institute for Music and Durham College, a longtime Hamilton music promoter and a teenage head superfan who was at that concert back in 1980. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Huge weekend on tap for many kids 
in our community. That's because it's the return of the Canusa Games. Yeah, our athletes from Hamilton are heading over to Flint, Michigan for this weekend's friendly competition. But before we get there, there's a big event happening in the city today. That is the Canusa Games Torch Run, which will be underway later on this morning. And here to talk about it is Louise Palchowskis, president of Canusa Games. Louise, good morning. Thanks for coming on the show today. Good morning, Rick. Uh, Give us the details of the torch run this morning. Where is it happening? When does it start? So we have about 12 triathlon athletes that are starting out with a swim at one of our local um, pools, YMCA. They will do about a two-kilometer swim, and then they will head over to our city hall, and there will be some speeches and introductions. And from there, they will do an eight-kilometer run, through Hamilton down to Dundas, um, ending around in the at the McDonald's there, and then from there they bike ride to Flint, which is about a 335 kilometer, and they'll do this uh, starting today and ending at our opening ceremonies in Flint, Michigan, on Friday morning, Friday afternoon around 12:30. Wow! So I'm I'm guessing they are quite prepared for the heat today and over the next couple of days. I would hope so. I think they are. <laughs> Lots of water to be brought with them. Are these athletes uh, as a part of the, is there a triathlon with Canusa or are they involved in other sports at Canusa? Uh, most of these are just with our triathlon okay. with Canusa Games. Wow. Uh, big news mm-hmm. as well this year because mm-hmm. it's a return to normal. It is. We're very happy to be back in person. We haven't had a in-person game since 2019, so we're very excited for that this year. So what are the what are the feelings? You mentioned you're just excited. Is there some anxiousness? Um, you know, we, we have to restart the wheel here and, and get all the good feelings back? It is. It's definitely a rebuild year, but we're very excited to be going over and having our athletes participate in most of our sports this year. Has anything changed because of the pandemic going into this year? The only thing that changed is border crossing for us is making sure everybody has their proper documentation just to get back over into Canada once they come over for the weekend. So in terms of billeting or sports or any kind of other COVID-like protocols, everything is pretty much normal? Pretty much normal. We do we do offer now the modified billeting um, where kids can have the option to stay with the parents. They are still matched up with an athlete to participate with them during the day. Um, but they do have the choice on the weekend to lay their heads down in a hotel room instead of uh, the billeting. And that's just post-pandemic, just so uh, athletes are comfortable yeah. with staying with families. That makes sense. Our guest on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML is Louise Palchowskis, president of Canusa Games. You can find out a lot more details online at canusagames.com. The games begin this weekend in Flint, Michigan, and this is a long-standing competition between athletes from Hamilton and those from Flint. Have you seen, because the games are back uh, in person for the first time since 2019, have you seen a resurgence in interest from local athletes? Uh, we, we definitely are in a rebuild year, but we definitely have many returning participants, which we are very happy about. And a big part of Canusa is not only the competition, as they're participating in sports like hockey and baseball and basketball, but it's the friendship of the games. This is a big draw for athletes. Absolutely. That's our logo is experience, uh, our motto, sorry, uh, experience of friendship, bonds that are built with the billeting aspect um, throughout the years. As you mentioned, last year was virtual. How did it go? 
It went really well, actually. We still were able to match up most of our athletes with a billet from Flint, um, where they participated socially online, and it actually was well-received by most of the athletes and families. This being a competition, we do have an all-time scoreboard, so what does it look like here? Um, that's a great question. <laughs> I, know, we're, I know we're trailing, right? <laughs> yes, we are. Well, we'll, we'll but get we're, them. We're hopeful this year it'll be a win for us, Hamilton. Yeah, we'll get them back. Louise, thanks that's for the time it. today. Good luck Thanks. in Flint this weekend. Thank you, Rick. Have that's, a good day. You too. That's Louise Pauchowskis, president of Canusa Games. Online, you can find out uh, details in terms of schedules, uh, results, uh, upcoming events, canusagames.com. Uh, CHML and Canusa has a long-standing relationship of uh, partnership. Uh, the great Bill Stirrup was a volunteer with Canusa for many, many years. And at one time, I believe, was the president of the Canusa Games Board. So uh, in memory of Bill, uh, go Team Hamilton. Uh, take down those athletes from Flint. And listen, even if you don't, just have fun. That's the name of the game for the Canusa Games. Always great to win, but as long as you have fun, make some friends, and represent Hamilton with some pride, that's all we can ask for. You're listening to the good Good morning, Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. A solar storm is expected to hit Earth today. That's right, a solar storm. What is it going to look like? What impact will it have? What kind of punch will it pack? Well, let's ask Paul Delaney, professor of astronomy at York University, who joins us now on Good Morning Hamilton. Paul, how are you? Yeah, very good indeed, Rick. Thanks for having me. Producer Liz sends me a text last night with a story headline, Solar Storm from Hole in the Sun Will Hit Earth. And I said, pardon? <laughs> What's going on today? <laughs> so what is happening is there is a stream of particulate radiation that is streaming out of well, basically the southern hemisphere of the sun through what we call a coronal hole. That uh, charged particles left the sun about mm, two days ago, and it's been heading towards us. It's washing over us now as we speak. It's, it's referred to technically as a geomagnetic storm. However, unlike storms that we're a little bit more uh, familiar with, this one is not to be worried about, really. Uh, we could get some auroral activity north of us tonight. Maybe not as far south as Hamilton, but certainly in the northern parts of Canada. Uh, there is the possibility of a little bit of radio disruption, satellites being impacted by these uh, particles, these, uh, this radiation. But in general, it's a pretty low-level storm. On a scale of sort of like one to three, uh, where one is severe, we're at about the three at the moment. So it's, it's not a big storm, but nonetheless, it has the potential for some interesting observing and possibly a little bit of radio interference. So this is like the sun taking a solar poop, basically, and we're, 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 getting, we're getting the aftermath of it. Okay. I've never quite put it that way in my class, but sure, that, that sums it up pretty well. Um, now, this reminds me of the movie Don't Look Up, which that was a comet hitting Earth and basically ending things, as opposed to this solar punch. Um, what, has there been a solar storm in recent memory that greatly impacted our planet? Perhaps the last one that, that really had a significant impact for us here in Canada was all the way back in 1989. That took out the Quebec hydro grid for about 12 hours and sort of plunged a lot of people into darkness. Since then, most of the storms that have happened, and we do get geomagnetic storms on a regular basis, but to the level where they really cause a significant impact to literally millions, if not billions of people, those are rare. 
unfortunately. And as I say, the last big one that I can really remember was back in 1989. So that, that gives you a bit of a feel of how often the, the really big punches are coming. And that, that's good. We don't want them to be coming any more frequently than that, Rick. Yeah, no doubt about it. Paul Delaney is our guest on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. Paul is a longtime professor of astronomy at York University. And we're talking about a solar storm that is hitting Earth today. Is this on a, a cyclical pattern? Is there a cycle to these storms? And, and, and if not, are they becoming more common? The answer is both. Uh, every 11 years, the sun goes through a peak in its solar activity. For the last few years, we've had a very quiet sun and auroral activity, radio interference and so on, has been at a really low ebb. That is cyclically. Uh, and now we're on our way up. The peak of the current solar cycle will probably be within the next year or thereabouts. It's not a well-defined moment in time, but we have been watching what we call the number of sunspots on the sun steadily rise. And with that rise in sunspot activity, you see increased uh, coronal activity and you see increased uh, uh, storm activity like what we're seeing today. As I said, though, today's is a pretty low-level one. Over the next year, you're likely to see a few more what we call X-class solar flares, coronal mass ejections. Those are the ones that are potentially damaging to sort of infrastructure here on Earth if they are aimed at us. Remember, the sun is one big sphere, and just because it is erupting with a coronal mass ejection doesn't mean that it's aimed at us. But if it is, then you're talking like Carrington-level events like took place in 1859, which took out what modest infrastructure we had at that point in time, telegraphs and so on, just, you know, it was quite devastating. Wow, interesting stuff. Well, we'll uh, we'll take cover from the UV rays today, that is for sure, but nothing much to worry about other than that. Paul, really appreciate the time today. You're welcome, Rick. Take care. Paul Delaney, Professor of Astronomy at York University, uh, talking to us about the latest solar storm that is impacting our planet. Thanks for listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday mornings from 530 to 9 on 900 CHML and online at 900CHML.com. The Good Morning Hamilton podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your favorite podcast. I'm Rick Samprin. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free so you never miss an episode and make sure you rate and review.